All right, well, it's great to be with you all today. Uh, We're excited to start a new series this morning uh, called The Outsiders, where we're going to spend the entire summer exploring different examples and characters in the Bible that emphasize God's heart and God's plan, His purpose for the outcast. Uh, That's where we're going. Uh, But before we dive into our passage today, uh, let me first say to all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Um, Amen. I know for many of you, uh, like me, uh, you praise God for your daddy. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have had a dad who is very present in my life. He always has been. Um, I've never doubted his love for me. He's always believed in me. And that is such a powerful gift that dads can give their kids because children need affirmation from their fathers. And I'm eternally grateful that I've received that from mine, which has given me much needed confidence over the years. Um, But I know that my experience, my story is not necessarily true for everybody. Uh, For some of you, you didn't have a great relationship with your dad. Uh, Perhaps he was physically or emotionally absent. Uh, Some of you have, have lost a dad. And so Father's Day, just like Mother's Day, um, springs forth all sorts of emotions, and I recognize that. Uh, But for you godly fathers out there, uh, let me just say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you. Uh, Thank you for investing in your children. Thank you for showcasing your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, because godly daddies are invaluable to our society. They're invaluable. Because when dads step into and embrace the role that God has called them to, it's life-giving. It's life-giving. So thank you. Uh, for me personally, I remember when, we, uh, when Rachel and I brought home our first child, Avery, uh, and it took me a few days to, to realize that she was like a, a real, living, breathing creature, okay? Because she looked kind of like a baby doll, And uh, I remember a few days after she was born, I was laying down on my couch, and I had Avery, she was laying on my chest, and that's when it hit me, (laughs) like a ton of bricks. I was like, I'm a dad, (laughs) I'm a dad. And I remember like this, these waves of emotions just started flooding over me, and I started sobbing as I thought about this immense love that I had for this sweet baby girl, and I just started praying for her. And I started asking God, I said, God, would you bless this baby? God, would you lavish your grace on her? God, would you protect her, please? Would you draw her to yourself? And I was just praying all these prayers, all these emotions. And I also realized that uh, in that moment, that even though I'm not a violent person, um, I realized in that moment that like if someone messes with her, I think I I have it in me now to kill somebody, (laughs) okay? And uh, which naturally led me to start praying for her future husband, okay? Um, And so my daughter, she was three days old when I started praying for that guy. And so I'd pray, I'd say, Father God, I ask that you to humble that baby boy wherever he is. In Jesus' name, amen, okay? And uh, I know a lot of you dads out there like, amen, brother, preach that stuff. Um, But jokes aside, it's, it's hard to explain the deep well that exists in a dad in his heart for his kids. And I remember um, I had a godly man in college who I looked up to. 
And I remember he told me, he said, if, if God ever blesses you with a child one day, he said, every time you, you hold that baby, every time you think about how much you love that child, every time you think about how you would give anything just so that they could be happy, every time you do that, take a moment and pause and consider your father who is in heaven. And that's what we're going to do this morning. As we dive into Luke chapter 15, we are going to think about our father who is in heaven. And the main question that I want all of us to ask ourselves is this, okay, how does God view me? What does God think of me? Because our identity in this life will hinge off of how we answer that question. In fact, I want you to think about it right now. How do you think God views you? What do you think enters God's mind when he thinks about you? Because I think for a lot of us, we have a false view of how God sees us. So what I want to do this morning is I want to explore Luke chapter 15, just so we can get a glimpse of how God truly views us. Because I firmly believe that once we begin to grasp how God really views us, it will change everything. So that's where we're going this morning. But before we begin, would you bow? Would you pray with me that God would give us ears to hear as to what he wants to say to us? Well, Father God, we give you this time, and I pray, God, with all my heart as we, as we dive into Luke chapter 15, God, would you make known how you really view us and may it change us. So, God, we give you this time. I need you. Would you speak through me? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Luke chapter 15, uh, you'll notice that there's three stories in this chapter, if you want to turn there. You've got the lost sheep, you've got the lost coin. And you got the lost son. And what we're going to do is we're mainly going to focus on the story of the lost son, typically referred to as the prodigal son, which should actually be plural, prodigal sons, because there's two sons in the story. And spoiler alert, we're going to find out that they're actually both lost. But let's begin our time by reading the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. It says this, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. But both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let's stop there. Okay, we see here in the first two verses of chapter 15 that Jesus is teaching to a diverse group of people, people from all different walks of life. But you could really categorize these people into two groups. Okay, you've got the outsiders... And then you've got the insiders. And so the first group, the outsiders, consisted of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, if you don't know anything about the tax collectors during this time, uh, they, were, they were Jewish people uh, who worked for the Roman government. And they had a horrible reputation. Because as they went around collecting taxes for Caesar, they were notoriously known for upcharging their brothers and sisters so that they could make a profit. So people hated them. Tax collectors were seen as the worst of traitors. They were sellouts. And people hated them so much that they weren't allowed to socialize with other Jews. In fact, they weren't even allowed to worship in the synagogue. And then you've got the sinners. 
Okay, these are those who had denounced God with their life. Okay, they knew there were Jewish laws. They knew they were supposed to abide by these laws, but they didn't care. They're like, I'm going to do my own thing. And so the Jewish community shunned them as a result. Yet interestingly enough, these unclean, broken outsiders are received by Jesus. They're drawn to him. They're accepted by him. And it drove the religious people of the day bananas. Uh, They couldn't believe it. Um, They are flabbergasted that Jesus, who claimed to be a man of God, would not only welcome sinners, but he had the audacity to eat in fellowship with them. Therefore, these religious insiders began to complain and grumble. And it was a tense situation because you've got two groups of people with two totally different worldviews at odds with one another, the outsiders and the insiders. And it's really not much different than what we see in 2021. You've got the outsiders, the sinners, and then you've got the insiders, the moral people who don't want anything to do with those pagan types. And Jesus says, I've got a word for all of you, so, so come near. If anyone has ears, let them hear. And then he starts to tell them some stories. And he starts off by telling them two stories about a shepherd who searches for his lost sheep. And then a woman who searches for her lost coin. And when they found that which was lost, they throw a party and they celebrate. And Jesus says the same is true when a lost sinner repents and comes back to God. Because at the very heart of God is a God who seeks sinners and celebrates when they are found. Because our God is a seeking and celebrating God church. And he calls his people to be a seeking and celebrating people. And in order to drive this point home, Jesus shares one last story about a father who had two very different sons. And that's where we're going to pick up. Most of y'all know this story. It's a very popular story in the Bible. But as I stated at the beginning, we typically focus on the prodigal son, singular, when there are actually prodigal sons, plural. And the point of the parable is to compare and contrast the two sons. So that's what we're going to do. The parable is divided into two different acts. You've got Act 1, verses 11 through 24, which is about the lost younger brother. And then you've got Act 2, which is about the lost older brother in verses 25 through 32. So let's read about the lost younger brother in Act 1 together, verses 11 through 24. It says this. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the father divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with wild or loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men would have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven 
and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Amen. Let's stop there. Beautiful story, isn't it? I probably shouldn't even try to preach because it preaches as it is. (laughs) But I want to give it my best shot. And I know there are probably quite a few of you listening who right off the bat can resonate with this story in many ways. Uh, For some of you parents, you may resonate with the father, a parent who is waiting for their wayward child to come back home. And for some of you parents, that's you right now. You've got a child who has wandered away from the Lord and you're praying and you're waiting for them to come back home. For others of you, you identify with the lost son because that's your life right now. If you were honest, you would admit you're lost. You've run from God and you don't know how to get back to him. You've turned to other things hoping they would satisfy you, but now you feel enslaved to those things and you don't know how to get out of it. It's a very captivating and emotional story. And it's easy for some of us to put ourselves into the story and identify with it, and I think we're meant to. But what I want us to do is I also want us to take a step back, and I want us to consider how the original audience, particularly a Middle Eastern Jewish audience, would have received this story. Because for the original audience, this parable would have been revolutionary. So let's talk about why that would be. We see at the beginning of the story, we notice that there's a father who has two boys And we see that the younger son asked for his father to give him his share of the estate. Which may seem harmless to us, but to a Middle Eastern audience, this would have been extremely disrespectful. A little background for you. According to Jewish law, we see in Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 that after a father passes away the eldest son would receive a double inheritance and then the other sons would split the remaining amount meaning the eldest son would get twice as much as the other sons. Uh, I'm the oldest uh, sibling in my family, and so I've often reminded my parents of this verse, okay? I'm like, Mom and Dad, don't forget about Deuteronomy 21.17, okay? It's God's word, okay? Uh, But in regards to this story, the eldest son would have received two-thirds of the estate, and the youngest son would have gotten one-third. And so what the younger son does is he goes to his father And he says, give me my share. And the reason this is so disrespectful is because typically this is something that would happen after the father dies. So for the younger son to come and ask for his share of the estate while his father is still alive would be equivalent to the younger son saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I don't want to be around you anymore. I'm done with you. Let me go. 
And the original audience would have expected the father to respond very harshly to this request, either verbally or physically. And some of you dads are like, yeah, that's probably the expected response today as well. But the astonishing thing in this story is that the father complies. He doesn't respond harshly like one would expect, but he grants the request. And he gives away his wealth to this ungrateful son. It's interesting, the Greek word for wealth here is the word bios, which means life. Meaning the father literally gives away his life to this ungrateful boy. You see, for the Jew, they were tied to the land. Their, their lives were literally attached to the land. It was, it was part of your identity. So for the father to sell part of the land meant to tear off and give away part of himself. In the eyes of the community, this would have been, been considered degrading. It would have caused the father much ridicule. But shockingly, the father gives away part of himself to this ungrateful younger son and says, here you go, my boy. Do with it what you will. And so the, the young man takes his share of the estate He takes his dad's hard-earned life and he runs away to a distant country, which once again would have been a slap in the face to the father because family and community was everything to a first-century Middle Eastern Jew. But this boy, he wishes his dad dead. He takes his money and he leaves behind his family and his community. I mean, this was an extremely painful event for the father. Because as many of you know, there's no pain like kid pain. And this father is experiencing one of the worst forms of kid pain, and that's rejected love. And that's what the father endures at this moment, rejected love. He gives his life to the boy in an act of love. But his son rejects his love. He runs away to a distant country in order to live a self-centered life. And then we find out the younger son learns what so many of us have learned in life, that the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the pasture. Because as the young man gives away to selfish indulgence, it leaves him bankrupt, which is the way it always goes when it comes to our selfishness. That's the problem of sin. I love the way Warren Worsby puts it. He says this, sin promises freedom, but only brings slavery. It promises success, but it brings failure. It promises life, but brings death. The boy thought he would find himself, but he lost himself. And that's what happens to this young man. He goes his own way, and a famine comes that wrecks his plans, and everything that he was hoping to gain, he lost. And may I just add that often the famine comes as an act of God's grace. Because sometimes God has to turn your life upside down so that you finally start looking up again. And that's what happens to this son. He gets to a point in his life where he literally has nothing. He's got no money, no food, no nothing. He is absolutely broken. And so he sells himself to some pig farmers. And once again, the original audience, they would have heard that and they would have gasped. They would have been like, you've got to be kidding me. Because feeding pigs to a Jew was considered 
unclean work. Only an absolutely desperate Jewish person would take a job like that. This would be rock bottom status for a first century Jew. But then in verse 17, something critical happens. Something necessary for for life change to occur. And it's this. It says, as the boy was eating with the pigs, in the midst of his brokenness, it says that the boy came to his senses. Listen, church, this is where God's will and man's faith, that's where it collides. If life change is ever going to happen for anyone, there's got to be a moment where you come to your senses. This phrase is an idiom for repentance, meaning in the midst of this young man's brokenness, this boy had the realization that I'm going down the wrong road. I'm meant for something more than this. There's got to be a better way. And once you start thinking like that, life change is always possible. When you start realizing that the road you're on is not the right one, that's God's grace moving in your life. When you start thinking those thoughts, that's the Holy Spirit moving. That's God convicting you, trying to get you back on the right path. And when he does that, it's time to pay attention and act. And that's what this boy does. He starts to think back to his father. And he says, you know what? My father takes care of his hired servants better than I can take care of myself. So maybe I can convince my dad to take me back as one of his hired men. So he comes up with a plan. And it's a good plan. He says to himself, I'm not going to make excuses I'm going to own my sin. I'm going to own my mess. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I'm going to go see if my dad will somehow forgive me, show me mercy, and possibly give me a job. And so the younger son goes back home to a family whom he has humiliated. And as a Jewish man, he would have known that since he violated the community, there was a good chance that he would be stoned to death on his way back in. Because that's how the Jewish community dealt with sinners like him. And that's what the original audience would have been thinking. But in verse 20, there's a massive twist in the story. Because it says that while the son was a long way off, the father saw him from afar and he ran to meet him. Uh, The original audience would have been very confused by this. uh, Because first century... Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Children ran. Youth ran. But not fathers. Not owners of estates. Because back in those days, in order to run, you had to pull up your robe so you'd bare your legs. And in that day and age, that would have been a degrading and humiliating thing for a highly esteemed man to do. But this highly esteemed father, he sees his son from a distance. And Jesus says he pulls up his robe and he runs to meet his boy. Which also indicates that this father has been waiting for his son. You see, the boy had probably been gone for a long time. But his father clearly hadn't given up on him. He'd been looking for him faithfully day after day after day. He'd been looking out to see if his son was coming back home. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He says that after his father runs to his son, he says the father embraces the boy and kisses him over and over and over. 
I want you to remember that this young man has been working with pigs. He hasn't bathed in who knows how long. I want you to imagine the stench that probably came from his body. And he also would have been considered ceremonially unclean by the community. But his dad doesn't care. He embraces him in all his filth and he lavishes his love on him. And then the son tries to start the script that he thought of. He starts to apologize to his father. And then the father cuts him off. He won't even let him finish. He doesn't wait for his son to prove himself. He tells his servants, he says, give my best robe and cover his dirtiness. Get my ring and give the boy back his dignity. Get my sandals and give him back his home. And then the father says, there's no veterinary, we don't just eat vegetables here. Go get that fattened calf. (laughs) We're having a barbecue today. Because my son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And then they celebrated over this broken son who finally returned home. In church, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus offers to anyone who will believe in him. Jesus says, come to me with all your filth and all your dirtiness. I took that stuff to the cross. He takes his robe of righteousness for anyone who believes in him and he wraps it. He says, give me your shame and I'll give you dignity. He says, you're not a slave. You're my son. Take my sandals. Welcome home. But then we find out in verse 25 that this beautiful event surprisingly maddens the eldest son. So let's pick up in verse 25 as we close. It says this. Now the father's older son was in the field. And he came and he approached the house. And he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could be. And the servant said to the older brother, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and he began pleading with his son. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. And I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, he said, Son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You know, it's interesting because what gets the older son all riled up in this passage is the calf. He says, you killed the fattened calf? Are you kidding me? You've never even given me a goat, which may seem weird. uh, But in these days, you have to understand that meat was a delicacy. It was a very expensive thing to do. So if you ever slaughtered a fattened calf, you would invite the whole community over for dinner. And the fact that the father did this, it just absolutely enrages the older son. He can't believe it. In fact, in verse 20, he actually speaks down to the father by saying, look here, literally, how dare you? 
which was a very disrespectful thing to do in this culture. Middle Eastern Jewish sons didn't talk to their fathers in this way. So the question becomes, okay, what is the elder brother's problem? Why is he so angry? Why won't he join the feast and celebrate with the family? Well, in a marvelous plot twist, Jesus reveals that the older brother, just like the younger brother, is lost too. The difference is the younger brother was lost because of his badness, yet the older brother is lost because of his self-perceived goodness. On the outside, the older brother was a good model citizen. He was an obedient son. He was clearly a hard worker because he was out in the fields when the younger son came home. So how was the older brother lost? Well, Jesus shows us he was lost because of his toxic goodness. He was self-righteous. He could openly name the sins of his younger brother, but he couldn't name any of his own. He could point out the speck in his brother's eye, but he couldn't name the log that was in his own eye. And instead of forgiving his brother and enjoying the celebration, he stayed on the outside and he pouted. You see, church, envy and entitlement are deadly diseases. And it's interesting because everybody in the chapter experienced joy except the older brother. The shepherd, the woman, the friends, the prodigal son, and the gracious father all experienced joy. But the eldest brother would not forgive, so he had no joy. He could have repented and joined the feast, but in his mind, he had nothing to repent of. So he stayed on the outside. And he suffered instead. Yet look at how this father deals tenderly with his elder judgmental son. Look at how he responds in verses 31 and 32. He says, my son or my child, everything I have is yours. Come join the feast. Rejoice with us. Because your brother who was dead is now alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And then the story ends. (laughs) Jesus ends the parable. He drops the mic and he just walks out the room. Uh, he just, he leaves a cliffhanger. And so the reader is left wondering, well, what happened? Did the, did the older brother, did he join in the celebration? Was the family reunited? Like, how did it end? And the reason that Jesus ends in this manner is because he wants the audience to put themselves in the story. This is meant to be participatory. Because there's two types of people in this world. And Jesus asks every single one of us. He says, which one are you? For some of you, you're the younger brothers of the world. And for others of you, you're the older brothers of the world. For some, your life resonates with that of the younger brother. If you are absolutely honest right now, you would admit that you are struggling right now. You've gone your own way and it's not working out like you thought it would and you feel guilty this morning because of how far you've fallen. And Jesus offers you this morning to come home. He says, come home. The message that Jesus has for you is that your heavenly Father still loves you. He's waiting for you. He's searching for you so that he can celebrate your life. Will you come home? For some of you, you've never been celebrated before in your life. Nobody has ever truly celebrated you. And Jesus says, I do. My father does. 
Come home. There's life to be found. There's life. And then for others, your life resonates with the older brother. And if we were honest here at Wayside, I think a lot of us probably resonate with the older brother. We work hard. We're rule followers, always trying to do what's right. But often it's not because we love God. We do those things in order to appear a certain way. And for many of us older brother types, we're angry. We're angry. We're bitter. And it's stealing the joy that was meant to be ours. And Jesus offers us. He says, come sit at my table. Come enjoy the feast. God is doing good things in your life. He's doing good things in our world. He's drawn sinners to himself. Will you join him in his mission? Lay down your prideful goodness this morning and come before your heavenly father just as you are. He'll accept you. He'll accept you. You don't need to prove yourself to anyone. Lay down your pride and come to your father. And instead of critiquing sinners all the time, Maybe imitate your father and seek them out in love because our God is a God who loves the sinner. He pursues the outsider and he celebrates when sinners repent. Will you join him in doing the same? Church, our God is a seeking and celebrating God. And he's called his people to be a seeking and celebrating people. We have a good father, amen? A forgiving father, a seeking father, a celebrating father. Father, I've got three little girls, and a lot of you parents know when little kids, when they want their daddies to hold them, what do they do? Put their hands in the air. They put their hands in the air, saying, Daddy, hold me, hold me, I need you, comfort me. And that's a fitting picture of how we are called to live our lives as we trust the Lord. We come to our Father with our hands in the air. We say, Father, would you hold me, please? I'm tempted to be the younger son. Would you hold me? I need you. God, I'm judgmental. I get so angry. I get so bitter. I get so entitled. Hold me, Father. I need you. I need you. And then let your father, your good father, embrace you with his seeking and celebrating love because that's the heart of our God. That's our God. If you've run far from him lately, this text shows you our father's looking for you. He's waiting. Will you come home? Will you come home? I'm going to pray. And as we pray, I want you to ask yourself, which one am I right now? Am I the younger brother or the older brother? Where am I tempted? And then let's come home this morning and then we're going to close in worship. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. We need you. So prone to wander, God. For some of us, we've been running for a long time because we're afraid that you won't accept us anymore. And so, God, I ask that right now that your spirit would come over your children. You'd say, child, I still accept you. Come here. I die for people like you. Come home. And may they know that all of heaven celebrates when one sinner repents and turns back to God. God, I know we got some angry people here this morning because there's a lot going on in our world, and they are just so frustrated. And it is easy to critique the world and judge the world. But Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to set it free. So God, may we be a seeking and celebrating people. Would we join you in our mission and know that you speak tenderly to the judgmental son just like you do the younger lost son. Would we come home this morning?
pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please, let's sing.